0: few months ago, I bought my wife a book uh, on based upon Coptic christian uh, not Coptic but Celtic Christianity. Uh, my wife is the woo-woo person of the family if you haven't figured that out by now I mean she sees you know God speaking through birds and flowers and trees and rituals and dreams and journals and all that kind of stuff and and so Celtic Christianity is is a form of a much broader spectrum. You know, there's lots of different ways that that Christ's body has reflected itself throughout the centuries and time. A Roman Catholic uh, um, tradition, out of which the Protestants that you and I are, uh, comes out of a long line of people who were focused on right doctrines. And so the, the Western church grew up intellectually oriented, which is why most churches come and we still expect a sermon and we still expect to hear things and go home with a new idea in our heads. And that comes out of that Western Christian tradition that the Roman Catholics uh, epitomized early on. The Eastern Orthodox, however, were those who who didn't stress uh, theology at all. They stressed presence of God in the mystery. And so you go to an Eastern Orthodox church and you're entered into this mystery through the the icons and the the incense and all of the, just the really interestingly strange things for us in the Western world, how their churches reflect their understanding of God. Then there was a huge part of the church called the Coptic Christians who were out of Alexandria, and they were a unique expression, pretty much set up and designed by God to, to, um, stand against the uh, Islamic tradition coming into northern um, Africa at that point in time. So they shaped themselves very differently than the western or the eastern because they were in a spiritual battle with a whole thought system different than their own. And so they developed a whole different way of expressing their understanding and, and appreciation for Jesus. The Celtic tradition comes out of Ireland and Scotland and And they pretty much see God everywhere in things, and they were much more the mystical side of Christianity. Um, Everything had symbolism and and stories and and rituals were very, very important for that side. So I I bought her this book because it sort of reflects her personality and what she likes to enjoy and enter into as a Christian. And uh, in in this book is this little phrase, and I have it for you because it's going to sort of shape what we're going to say this morning. <clears throat> your body is an expression of your soul. Your body is your only home in the universe. It is your house of belonging here in the world. Now, one of these days, Bev says she's going to write her story, and it's going to, the title of it's going to be The House of Belonging. Because God has spoken to her through the through her life on the houses that we've lived in, which I didn't know I signed up for when I got married. It holds the memory of your soul's experiences. Your body is in the soul, and the soul surrounds all that you are. Now, is that way off the charts for you guys? I mean, is that, you know, is that way too woo-woo? Okay? We're going to get back to some reality here, but I just sort of want to set us up. Your body is a reflection of who you are, but it is not who you are. In other words, when you look at me, you see my body. You see that body, but it is also a reflection of my soul, who I am underneath all of that, my true nature. My body is not me. My me is much more profound. It is desire and hope and success and failure and and all of that and much more wrapped up together. And on the outside, it sort of looks like this old gray-haired, wizened man. Why I share this this morning is because we come to this part of the story of Nehemiah chapter 4. And if you have a Bible... I'll offer you to open that up to Chapter four. If you, there's some Bibles in the windows, you can also, of course, connect on the Internet as well. But this morning, I'm using this as a metaphor to help us introduce this story on two or three different levels. The first is the physical level. The Jews needed a wall that would protect them and their families. They came from Babylon after 70 years of captivity. The last thing they saw in their rearview mirror, of course, none of these did because they were not even, there maybe have been tiny little children at those points, but most of these people did not have a memory of Jerusalem because they were born in Babylon. They came back, but the stories were very real and very, very uh, painful for them because the last thing anybody saw of Jerusalem was, was walls were being burned down and torn down to rubble, because that was just the instruction of of the king of of Babylon at that time. Just destroy everything. Nothing stands on top of one. One rock cannot stand on top of another. That's how bad that destruction was. So when they come back to protect themselves in those days, which was the the normative way for people to protect themselves, they all gathered in walled cities. We see that in medieval Europe. We see that all over the place. So on a physical level, this was an important thing to do, just to give life and hope for the the people returning from Babylon. But on a deeper, more spiritual level, the Celtic tradition invites us to remember that the building of the walls was also an expression of the Jewish soul. Jerusalem was all the center of God's activity for them. It is where the temple had been once, Solomon's temple where God's presence had come in and the smoke of his presence had just permeated the whole city and the walls were there and, and David and, and Solomon had made it a secure nation and God was pouring his blessing upon them. In fact, it says in the days of Solomon... The wealth of, of Israel was like stone, the gold was like stones in the middle of the street. There was so much wealth and, and, and prestige wrapped up in the history of Jerusalem. And so their memory is that God was there once. We thrived under God's direction. We will thrive again. The hopes and dreams and passion of the future was wrapped up in the building of that wall around that old broken down place the temple was going to be there again and God was going to show up again and and the Messiah was going to appear and, and they all of course had different pictures of what that Messiah was going to be but the history of God's deliverance in the past was going to be manifest to his his deliverance in the future it wasn't just a physical restoration of the walls it was a spiritual restoration as well they were being revived spiritually by every brick and mortar that went into that restoration of that wall the soul of judaism was wrapped up in the rebuilding of the walls surrounding jerusalem those walls were truly a reflection of the jewish soul of the day okay enough of the woo-woo stuff let's just pray for a minute and get started on the story shall we Thank you, Father, for loving us and that you also gave us souls, essence, realities, hopes, dreams, the unseen stuff that churns within us that truly makes us who we are. And as you come to offer rebuilding of those broken down walls as well this morning, we just invite you to do whatever you need to do, whatever needs we may have and present as we come to hear this great and grand story of the rebuilding of these walls in Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day. So bless us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. In this story, chapter 4, for the very first time, we are introduced to a man by the name of Sanballat. He was mentioned once in chapter 2, just briefly, but now in in chapter 4, Sanballat emerges... He is the archenemy of God's people. He hates everything that God's people is trying to do. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. Now it came about that when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious, very angry, and mocked the Jews. And he spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? Have you ever noticed that when somebody wants to put you down, they always seem to know just where to put the thumb on your shame? I don't know how instinctive, why are we so smart when it comes to putting people down and so dumb when it comes to helping people be loved? Why is it that way? But we can instinctively pick the scab off of somebody's wound and hardly think twice about it. Here's the great wound of Judaism, the broken down walls, because it symbolized that they had gone after, uh, after other gods and they were no longer following Yahweh. And, God, and Yahweh had said, you don't follow me, you're going to be run over. And here is this arch enemy, this accuser of the brethren, so to speak, this devil symbol here really is what it is, putting his thumb on their shame. You guys blew it with God. You think it's all going to be restored? You think it's all going to be made new just overnight, you feeble Jews? You think you can rebuild walls off of the shame of your past failure, those burned out rocks that you're trying to put back on the wall, the rubble that's still surrounding all of that? I don't know what your shame is. You know, Maybe you had a job for 20 years and things changed at work and you lost your job and Somebody comes along in a moment of anger, says, well, Bob can't keep a job. You know, and just puts the thumb right on your shame there. Maybe you made a sexual mistake and somebody calls you a slut or, or whatever. Or, or maybe you're a parent and you have a teenager. They have a great way of knowing how to do all this. They can go right to the core of your weakness, can't they? In about three, three sentences... And they've just destroyed you because they know right where to cut. So we know the feeling very well. When a sand ballot shows up in our life, and sandballot here was the enemy of God, the, the, the devil figures, I said, <coughs> excuse me, I'm getting over this cold, and... Um, in, in the historical sense, he was an Iranian governor who came in when all the Israelis left and only a few were out hiding in rocks and caves, and, and uh, they became what was later called the Samaritans because they uh, cohabitated with whoever was around and started a whole other race of people, which is why the Jews hated the Samaritans so much when they came back uh, when Jesus, in Jesus' day. But, beside all the point... Sandballat was this Iranian govern, governor who had all the power in that region. He was assigned to that region. He had all the wealth, all the control, all the rich friends. Everybody, everything was on his side. And he had much to lose if the Jews were going to come back and get re-engaged in the community. He had his position to, to, to worry about. Have you noticed that every good story requires a good villain? You have to have a good enemy in order to be heroic. Have you ever noticed that? Well, here now we start unraveling this heroic story of Nehemiah in the face of this powerful enemy called Sanballat. David needed Goliath. um, Moses needed Pharaoh. Elijah needed Ahab. Every good story that you have in in the Scriptures is always... A hero against a giant of an opposition person, whatever that would be. And since your life is a story, and since you have walls that you're building that is the essence of who you are inside, the natural question this morning would be who is your sand ballot? Who is the one that has his or her thumb on your shame? Your brokenness, your woundedness, the stories that keep rolling through your head. Could you this minute, this very moment write down what is the obstacle in your life? Could you write down what your enemy was? Could you define your personal enemy right now? If so, you're living a life of intentionality. You know who your enemy is. You are living a heroic life standing against that specified enemy that resides usually within your two ears, somewhere in in between there. But if not, may I suggest that you take some time soon to figure out what is the enemy within you? What is that enemy saying about you? Where is your rubble lying? The dust of your shame. Are you buying into the sand ballot in your life and believing that whatever sand ballot says about you is true, that you're feeble, that you're hopeless, that you're just just, uh, confusing yourself thinking that things will get better if you build a few rocks on top of another? Are you believing the devil's lies about you rather than God's truth about you? I'll just give you a few examples of that this morning. The devil says, oh, you're ugly. I don't know what it is about all of us. I think I've said this one other time, but I don't know what it is about all of us. None of us like our bodies. Have you ever noticed that? None of us like our bodies. I don't even think Arnold Schwarzenegger did, and he was ugly when he was in his prime, but he, you know, he had all the muscles, but... You know, I don't know if anybody ever likes their body. And the devil within us says, your body really sucks. But God's truth is, I made you that way. I put the DNA in you. I have something unique and powerful that I am shaping into you so that you look just like you. And I like what you look like. Another lie is, if I just had more money, I'd be happier. That sound familiar to anybody? Or do all of you have the victory over whatever? The truth is that you can be content because God owns it all anyway, He's going to give it to you as you need it. You've got all the resources at your disposal. Or the lie is, I'm bad, no you're not bad. You're God's creation, you were made glorious and all He's doing is trying to restore you to your original glory what so this whole story about all of us is anyway from Genesis through Revelation I'm not loved or lovable and the truth is is that you are loved just as you are by the creator who made you and there's nothing about you that's not un- that's not lovable in essence But if your enemy is only your boss at work or the failure of your latest weight loss program, you don't really have much of an enemy, do you? Sort of on the low scale of enemies, don't you think? Or if you choose to leave home, sail across the ocean, come to Calcutta, resist all of the local uh, power structures, resist your own church councils trying to get you to do something that they want you to do, stand up against culture and tradition, hold dying people in your arms on the dirty street corners when no one notices or cares, then you can become a Mother Teresa. Based upon the opposition of which you choose to face, and most of us are not going to be a Mother Teresa. Most of us think that our giants, our enemies, are a little bit more profound than our weight loss program. But where is your enemy? How strong is your enemy? May I suggest to you this morning that we need to pray for big enemies that God doesn't want us just to sit around here with our swords flashing against weak little opposition. He wants us to stand up against the Goliaths of our lives, against King Herod who is out to destroy us, to find, find us and ring us up, whatever. If all we're doing is fighting against flies, we aren't worth much. God is calling us, each one, to be a hero. He is calling for you to be significant, to make a difference in your world, so that when you die, the world will be a different, better, much more like kingdom on heavens kind of stuff than it was when you were born into this world. To stand up and make a difference even if no one notices. I love this verse. I you know, it's sort of horrifying verse, but I love this verse in Hebrews 11 after after the author of Hebrews has gone through all these great heroes of faith. In verse 36 he comes to this myriad of people he says, and this is how he de- describes them. They were stoned They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with a sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of of whom the world was not even worthy." Wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground, and all these having gained approval through their faith, faith. Heroes that you and I will never know their names. There was no billboard with them on it, no picture on YouTube or doing some amazing thing. These were just people who walked their heroic lives, and you and I will never know them this side of eternity. Mostly your life will be a life of obscurity. You will not always be in the limelight somewhere. Mostly it's just being faithful to God and standing up against whatever stands in the way of what God's will is for your life in powerful and profound ways. The sand of this world get destroyed because you have chosen to be heroic. now to the last truth of this symbol in this story the walls that surround jerusalem are symbols of the walls that are being built around the church called vineyard rolla this study in nehemiah is a spiritual road map for you and i today as we are doing whatever god is wanting us to do right here in this time and place we too have a history We too have moments of shame. We too have our brokenness. But we too also have our love. We have our successes. We have our heroic moments. We have all of these things that are being crafted together in unique ways right now in in, in probably the most unusual way that you can imagine a church to be rebirthed. We are now being rebirthed presently, this moment in time. Vineyard Graw has been many things over the past several years, ever since it's been around 20, 25 years. It wasn't even a vineyard church at first, and then it gradually it, it grew in its understanding and awareness and wanted to align itself with the vineyard movement of, of worship and, and the kingdom of heaven being present on this earth. And our job is to encourage and create that kingdom to be, to be superimposed upon that which is not following the will of God on this earth. That, that concept has been captivating this group of people for a long time. But there's been good people here who have wanted this church to return to some former time and place where they sense God's presence alive and well. And, and so those good people have moved on to find other places that maybe reflected that a little bit more cl- clearly than where they thought this church was headed. Other good people have wished for a unique ring to the gospel that was not being uh, said here, and so they found other churches that had that ring. And, and so God has, has allowed us now to come at this time and place and start saying, okay, what are the walls? Where do the walls need to be built? Am I willing to be a wall builder? And so God is actually calling right now wall builders into this community in a very profound way. And I hope that some of you hear that tug this morning as you're hearing this story being told. It is now up to us, and I write this because I don't want you to miss it. It's so good. It's my my writing, so I know it's really good. But I don't want you to miss this part of it right here, okay? It is now up to us to find that section of the wall wherein we reside and we begin to build. We become single-minded, focused, graceful, and diligent, passionate about being our part of God's kingdom on earth right now. We become happy nail pounders, not fussing nail pounders, not grouchy nail pounders, happy nail pounders. How do you like that? Our only doctrine is you've got to be happy. Not real happy nail-pounders and and bricks-and-mortar followers. So now let's see what this story in chapter 4 tells us now that we understand what we're talking about here, okay? We're talking about here and now. We're not talking about ancient history. We're talking about what God wants to craft right here. Nehemiah chapter 4 verse 8. And all of them conspired together to come and fight again. This is Sanballat. Now here's the enemy. Here's what the challenge is for heroes to emerge. Heroes never emerge unless there's a good enemy. Here's the enemy. All of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. There's always opposition to every dream that God has for a congregation. There's always opposition to that. We should expect that we just lived through that over the last couple of years with our vision of the mission downstairs. I don't know how many of you know, but we have a mission downstairs that feeds the homeless and keeps them cool in the hot summers and and warm in the cool cold winters and and but when we first started the concept and all we were doing at that point in time was just offering free laundry service, which is which is a very valuable thing, but the vision was bigger than that. We got opposition all the, all across Rolla because our corporate response to the homeless was to give them a bus ticket to St. Louis or to Springfield. Nobody wanted the homeless to stay here in Rolla and be served in Rolla. And so with kindness and patience and love this church worked through some of that we began to expand our ministries and now it's a well-received ministry but it it, we could never have just walked and waltzed right into this we had opposition we have people that are very strongly opposed to what we were wanting to do here in the mission but more often than opposition coming from outside most of the time the opposition comes from within. And so this has happened on several layers of time, and I think every church has some of that. And whenever God breathes something new, there's usually a big church fight over that something new. I don't think we ever had a church fight here. I think just God called people into different places and times, and it was, uh, it was just difficult and glorious all at the same time for everybody involved. But what happened was with the mission is what now God is asking us to do. Somebody went out and just looked at the walls at night. That's what, when Sanballat emerged, and when, I'm not going to read that verse today, Nehemiah and some of his leaders just went out at night, snuck out there so Sanballat would know what they were doing. And they walked all the way around the walls to see what was needed and what was happening. And so they came up with a plan. And they did it specifically so Sanballat would not know what they were doing. And this is what they did, verse 9. We prayed to our God, and because of them we set up a guard against them day and night. Everything we need to do to rebuild the wall has to be rooted in our understanding of what God's will is for this unique congregation. Because God has not called this congregation to be what that congregation is or that one over there or that one behind us or that one in front of us whatever. He has called us to, in a unique way to be that unique expression of his character and his vision and his dream for Rolla. But what happens is Christians usually make a mistake at this point. Notice the very first part of this. We prayed to our God. Now somewhere in our past that has implied that we go and we pray until God gives us the handwriting on the wall to tell us every move to make and what to do. But that's not what Nehemiah did, and I don't think that's what most active Christians who are heroic, who believe that the Holy Spirit is guiding you by the air that you breathe and the, and the steps that you take and all of that, that, that God is going to shape you. And if you're going in the wrong direction, He can get you in the right direction. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. That was north. He hated the Ninevites. They were the arch enemy of God's people. Why do I want to go up there and save them? I'm going to go south to Tarshish where it's nice and warm and the beaches are wonderful down there. So he gets on this boat and he heads south and the next thing he knows, where is he? Half digested, yellow all over the place, but he's in Nineveh preaching the gospel. Actually, he's not preaching the gospel he's telling you people you're going to burn in 40 days. That was sort of a negative message. <laughs> and the people heard this typical damnation stuff. I don't this not in my notes, sorry. This you guys just sleep through this one. But they looked at him and he's all yellow. And they say, "Why are you yellow, Jonah?" "Well, I was in the belly of a fish for 3 days." 3 days and you lived What's that about? Well, how did you get to Nineveh? Well, my God save me. You mean your God saved you? Well, he can save us. Tell us about your God. It was not his message that transformed the world. It was his resurrection that transformed the world. Your changed life builds the walls. Your story of God's deliverance is what builds up the walls. That wasn't even, that was free. We don't even have to take the offering twice this morning. But what happens is we go and we pray and we just sit there and wait and wait and wait and the walls never get built. If you notice what it says here, we pray to our God and because of them we set up guard against them day and night. Instead of sitting around being spiritual and the enemy gets the advantage, these guys started to go on notice. We got to be careful. We got to be smart. We got to do things the right way. They got into the gifting of God that says, Listen, you're my sons and daughters. I'm going to bless whatever you do. Just do it. And if you're doing it wrong, I'll correct it somehow. I'll get my message to you, but don't just sit there and do nothing. Our praying is for two basic reasons. Number one, to remind us that God is bigger than we are. And number two is to check that our vision still matches His. But God rarely tells you what to do after that. God is not in the business of giving you minute, detailed actions of your daily life. He's saying, you are my child. Just go in grace, and I will bless you. When I was young, I never, hardly ever made a decision about anything without God clear-cut giving me a yes or no. And I would go and Bev Contessa, I'd go lock the door of some big decision, come along, and I'd pray for hours and sometimes days and sometimes over a weekend. And the older I got, I said, man, alive, that's really putting a lot on God. He gave me a brain. He gave me talents. He gave me gifts. He's going to bless me. I'm his child. I'm already I've already got my name in the will. Let's just go ahead and God'll shape whatever I do and bless whatever he can and and take, you know, forgive me for whatever he can't, but I'm I'm moving on because I know the passion of God that he's planted within me and that's out of that passion I serve and I kick in. Once we're doing what God has asked us to do, we roll up our sleeves and we begin to get the job done. And how did this work out? Well, at first, not so good. They got all got scared. So, Nehemiah 4, verse 14, he says, When I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles and officials and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Now, notice what he did not say here. First of all, he says, don't be afraid. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. That's what you pray for. Remind him that he's God. But then he didn't say, God is going to fight this battle for you. That's what the spiritual people say. Okay. What he says is, now that you know that he's great and awesome, you go fight. You get your sword out. You get your plow out. You get your hammer out. You guys go, let's get the job done. No one said it would be easy. A cakewalk through downtown. It's always fraught with warfare. This is what happened. One man heard Nehemiah's reminder of who God is, and he says, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to bring my servant with me. I've decided... We're going to do 24-7 on the wall. We're not going to get knock off until it's done, our portion of it. And he said, my servant's going to sleep, and when he's asleep, I'll guard him. And when, when I'm asleep, he'll guard me. And when I'm working, he'll guard me. And when he's working, I'll guard him. One of us will have a sword in our hands to fight in his in his army, and the other one will be at work, and we will not deviate until our portion of the wall is done. Somebody else, hey, that's a great idea. Somebody else. And that's how they got the job done. Last week, Marie said, two daughters. Well, I can guarantee you that one of those daughters had a sword in her hand somewhere along the way, while while dad and the other daughter were putting up the bricks on the wall. Everybody knew that they had an enemy and they were all living heroic lives. So what happened? The wall got built. Duh. The wall that symbolized the soul of Israel, all of its past, present, and future, got built because they recognized that God is awesome and good and each one stood up to their portion of the wall and built it and that wall lasted for 500 years until AD 70 500 year wall built by a servant holding a sword and a, an a owner owning a hammer bricks and mortar whatever so guess what the walls that we are building here symbolize our soul, symbolize our essence, our history, our past, our present, and our future. It's an extension of our minds, an extension of our hearts, and an extension of our souls that surrounds us and protects us by weakly reminding us that God is God and that we are not, which I think is the ultimate purpose of coming to worship. Otherwise, you and I are on this stupid God quest where we can't ever fail, we can't ever be human, we can't ever be anything but God. Let's give up the God business, let Him do it, and let's just get on building the wall. Creating a place that is safe for all people with never a question asked about your background. We're never going to ask you about your past history. You can share it at some point when it becomes your yellow-skinned resurrection story. Then you can share it. We'll never ask you about your financial strength, how much money you bring into the table, dudes. Your sexual orientation, your intellectual accomplishments, your influence. The list can go on and on. We're not going to ask those kind of questions. We're building right now walls of total grace where you are giving... Love and acceptance and forgiveness to each other as each other forgives you and loves you and accepts you. We are seeing Christ in you. What we are looking at when you walk in this door is not your failures, but your Christ likeness. Where do we see Christ in your life? Are you with us? Ready to pick up your sword and hammer? Get to your portion of the wall? Let's pray.